everybody. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. This is the fourth in our series now. My name is Henk van Rijn. I am on the Insight Programme Director Team. So science can play a critical role in informing decision-making uh, and enabling action, particularly identifying alternatives, clarifying the costs and the benefits of particular courses of action so that the policymakers in the government, for example, can choose between them. So now the Insight Programme has been looking at some of the fundamental science questions needed to understand and influence the influence and the value of structures in the marine environment over the last 10 years. What we've been doing in the Insight Programme over the last few months and will continue to do is to work closely with policymakers to identify where Insight Science can support their work. So Insight is coming to the end of its second phase now, and many of you will more than likely already be familiar with the programme, but it is worth saying that when Insight was first set up, it was the first real joint industry partnership of its kind in UK marine research. Its aim has always been to provide stakeholders with independent scientific evidence that can be used to better understand the influence of man-made structures in the ecosystems of the North Sea. We have quite a lot of projects. We've had a lot of projects over the phase two. Generally speaking, um, we, we've been looking at foraging by marine predators, testing the limits of the UK's autonomous fleet, understanding fish aggregation, blue carbon benefits. Uh, we've been developing AI to speed up the understanding of biodiversity associated with marine structures, and more recently investigating the effects and implications of subsea plastics incorporated into marine structures. Now, as I said, today's webinar is focused on cumulative effects assessments, and these are defined by the OSPAR Commission as a systematic procedure for identifying and evaluating the significance of effects from multiple human activities. It can also provide an estimate of the overall expected impact in order to inform management decisions. The analysis, analysis of the causes, pathways of exposure, and the consequences of these effects on ecosystem components is an essential and integral part of the cumulative effects assessment process. So to start us off and introduce the topic, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Ashton Lannan, who's the head of the Marine Management Organizations and Evidence Team. Uh, she'll provide us with some background work on what the MMO do and some wider context on the importance of cumulative effects assessment there. We then hear from our insight investigators. We have our very own Ed Wilstead um, uh, uh, coming in at the 11th hour from Hal Marine Consulting. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> and following on from Ed, we have Dr. Anthony Knight from the University of Plymouth talking to us a little bit about the Dreams and the Synthesis Project, and then uh, handing over to Dr. Owen O'Gorman, who is from the University of Essex, and will be chatting a little bit about the Fuecoms Project. Uh, finally, I will host a short question and answer session uh, towards the end of the webinar, in which there'll be an opportunity to ask our panel, our speakers, some um, of the questions that you might have for their, um, about their talks today. At this point, I will hand you over to Dr. Ashton Lannan from the Marine Management Organization. Thank you very much, Hank, and thanks everybody. It's really great to be here. At the MMO, we are the regulator that is responsible for planning, marine planning, for licensing, most of the things that happen in the sea. Some of the large infrastructure projects are a bit bigger than us, so it's the planning inspectorate that deals with them, but we are still quite a big part of that process. We are also responsible for licensing and managing all the fishing activity that goes on in the sea, though we work in collaboration with the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authorities to do do that and they have specific regional responsibilities in the not to 12 nautical mile area. We're also responsible for managing the marine protected areas, making sure that within those protected areas, the biodiversity of specific elements is maintained. And although it's easy to set out those things actually to to do that job well, we need to interlink, integrate and manage those things in conjunction with each other. And that is much harder to do than to say. And when the MMO was set up in 2010, I joined the organization soon after that. We wrote an evidence strategy which set out what it was the MMO needed to know to do its job. We had six very high level categories and to 
illustrate why I'm telling you this, those categories covered things like fisheries management, data, and would you believe cumulative effects was its own category. So cumulative effects was such an deemed such an important thing that the MMO had its own category and its own funding stream and its own work program related to cumulative effects. And I think that's a good thing. It was the right thing because the cumulative impact of all the activities that we manage in English seas is really is a really important and um, a big responsibility. However, the way that cumulative effects impacts were approached was to think about it from quite a specific activity based, um, pressure based, ecological viewpoint. And I think that we've evolved quite a bit from that. But I would suggest that we haven't evolved enough. I think there are still things that we really need to fundamentally discuss in terms of. Um, where cumulative effects sits within the context of achieving the government's objectives, what I think are all of our objectives, actually, to restore the marine environment, to deal with climate change, to increase biodiversity, while also living and operating as a species that relates very closely to the marine environment. So I think it's a tough topic is what I'm trying to say. And I know a little bit of the research that's going to be presented here today. And I think that it's very useful and valuable and it makes a contribution and that there is something about this collective coming together to talk even more about where cumulative effects fits in our context. And I say that because we have to make decisions we have to make decisions now that are based on much more complex information, which is a good thing. It's actually very positive because we have to consider not just lessening the impact of what's happening, but also doing this restoration and improvement work. So there's a complex set of objectives we need to achieve. And cumulative effects by its very nature is a system-based approach. I'm not sure if we're covering all the system in the way we're approaching it at the moment. And that's what I'm interested in because it should be a very interdisciplinary approach. And I don't know how well we're doing that just yet, but I'm really interested in how these scientists are beginning to bring that together and to talk about it much more and then where that fits in terms of a kind of a framework of decision making we have that is um that has multi multiple levels and operates on multiple spaces and at when i say multiple levels i mean at, at different decision making points there are lots of different decision makers the mmo isn't the only one and how we bring all of that together and that for me is the beauty of bringing science and policy together is to take this wonderful thinking and experimentation that's going on and model and to bring that together with the reality of what we must achieve for, for ourselves and for nature and the process by which we do that. Thank you, Ashlyn. That's great and well said. You know, I think, think you've outlined that it's complex. There are lots of different factors that need to be incorporated and, and it's been something that we've been working on for quite a while now, isn't it? So uh, thank you very much. And I, I think I think that's a, that leads on really nicely to our first science speaker, Dr. Ed Wilstead of Hal Marine Consulting, who who's going to build on what Ashland's just started there and elaborate quite a bit, um, sort of framing what is sort of cumulative effects assessment and what are the sort of challenges, you know, that it that it imposes on us and why it's important. So over to you, Ed. Thanks, Hank, and, and thanks, Ashling. So, right, I'm going to be talking about the uh, cumulative effects assessment and the gap that is, is, is sort of fairly obvious, I think, between science and practice. And as notice, I've dropped onto this at short notice, so excuse it if it's slightly rough around the edges. Um, so yeah, I'm Ed Wilstead. In the next 10 minutes, I'm going to be introducing two concepts. So two sort of scientific dimensions, um, which are sort of fundamental to assessing cumulative effects that, pre that present significant challenges to scientists, to practitioners and decision makers alike. And I'll touch on why the standard approaches that we rely on um, to assess cumulative effects are, are, are being slightly provocative and not fit for purpose and outline the kind of system that we might need to think about if we're going to be tackling cumulative effects. Firstly, just a quick thing, why should we be concerned about cumulative effects? The critical thing here is that if we're concerned about sustainable development, we're concerned about cumulative effects. So cumulative effects are uh, increasing. And the things that we care about, that fish, dolphins, pandas, people, doesn't matter, all those things don't experience stresses and isolation. And instead, the resilience of a population of porpoises or of a fishing community or of a business reflect the consequences of multiple causal agents um, which are acting on those entities over spatial and temporal scales that are defined by those entities. Cumulative effects assessment should, should support decision-making 
by systematically identifying and evaluating the significance of effects from multiple activities to provide an evidenced assessment of the expected impact. And the other critical point is that that should be informing the management measures that come after that. So, so far, so good. So why isn't this happening? And the two things that I'm going to introduce are basically complexity and, and the issue of scale. Um, and as Ashley mentioned, this is sort of set within systems. So the other part is that we need to bear in mind within systems, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So first, let's deal with complexity. So let's say we've got a development question. How is my development going to affect fish stocks? And we're going to take herring as an example, because I spent a significant amount of time researching herrings. What are the factors that affect herring production? So we need to know when we're thinking about the resilience and when we're thinking about sensitivity to particular impacts, we need to know a bit about the biology. And at its most basic, there are two kind of critical factors with, with herring, with fish, which are sort of like recruitment of new fish into the population and the growth of surviving fish. So then when we start sort of looking into some of the variables that influence those, we start seeing that we're sort of developing dependencies, we're developing relationships. There are other things that sort of feed into those two sort of basic factors. And we can start seeing some um, feedback loops building in. So on the left-hand side there, you've got a reinforcing loop. On the right-hand side, you can see a, a balancing loop. And then of course, we've got the sort of like the natural mortality that's on top of that. Now, the ecology is also relevant. So we need to start thinking about what food is available. We need to start thinking about what's eating the herring. Um, and we need to think about sort of specific life uh, cycle stages, which are sort of particularly relevant to the herring as well. And now when we start to add in the human activities that impact resilience, the main thing that we think of is fishing. But there's a range of other sort of activities which can have sort of direct impacts. It can also have indirect impacts. Um, on elements of the herring lifestyle. And then if we really throw the kitchen sink at it, then you can add in climate change to the mix. Now, if we then sort of build this into what becomes a sort of like a full causal loop model, um, uh, this neatly sort of demonstrates, the only sort of neat thing about this diagram, the neat thing that it demonstrates is that this is complex. So there is complexity, we can't hide from it, we need to think about these things in terms of systems. So for example, Understanding the significance of the noise, um, which is generated by piling of offshore wind turbine foundations, um, requires comprehension of what else is happening to the herring to be able to understand the actual significance of a particular activity on that population. And while this diagram looks daunting, firstly, we've got lots of information about many of the variables. And secondly, arguably, we don't need information about all of the variables. The problem is that lots of the information is considered in isolation. So the next thing to introduce and just touch on is this, this concept of, of scale, and, and particularly when we're thinking about this in, in terms of, of cumulative effects. So we've got spatial scales and we've got temporal scales. And there's a lot of activity which is happening in our seas, and some of it has some effect on herring. So to avoid a death by a thousand cuts, we need to have some comprehension of what's happening over the extent which is defined by the herring. So the spatial extents which are defined by the entity that we're concerned with. Now, the next point is temporal scale. And this is one way, if you look at um, cumulative effects assessments, time, and I'm talking particularly about ones which are used within decision making, so EIAs, SEAs, and things like that. Time is very often a sort of a neglected part of this, but it's critical. And the point is that the consequences of the same activity at those two arrows, which I've just put up there, are going to be quite different. It can be the same activity, the same sort of amount of noise energy put into the environment, for example, but the potential impact, the significance of that is going to be substantially different over time. So we need to have access to data that provides us with a time series of how populations have changed over time. So I've said that assessing cumulative effects is complicated. And yes, if we're seeking to a comprehensive answer all in one go, that is certainly true. The scale of the task is daunting. Scientific knowledge, as we all know, sort of builds incrementally, but we haven't got a system that underpins cumulative effects assessments that supports the iterative nature that we need, that spans the scales that are relevant to managing cumulative effects. So what is the current assessment system? And I mentioned before that the system of assessing cumulative effects that most nations rely on, especially in the marine environment, is not working. So decision-making about development is very often informed by environmental impact assessments, EIAs, and to a lesser extent, strategic uh, environmental assessments. And I mentioned two reasons why we're not delivering meaningful, meaningful um, cumulative effects assessment at the moment. Firstly, because that, there is that complexity. And secondly, because the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and the scales that we need to look at. And, and to bring in that systems thinking. And I hope I've conveyed that cumulative effects assessment requires a broader perspective. So considering one activity in isolation is not going to give you a robust assessment. We know from complex adaptive systems theory and from practice as well, 
that making decisions based on an understanding of one piece of the puzzle without reference to the wider context leads to environmental degradation. And I'm going to be provocative and say that that's precisely what EIA and to a lesser extent SEA do. EIAs and most SEAs consider isolated effects on isolated receptors, but what we need is an assessment system that spans across the range and the life cycle of receptors. The other point that sort of comes in here um, is that we're sort of making inquiries into better practice through various streams. There's a lot of work going on in the scientific sphere. We've got EIAs, which contribute sort of high resolution data sets at particular scales. We've got lots of things which are inquiring into cumulative effects assessments, but they're not necessarily speaking the same language. So one of the issues that we've got, and particularly going back to the, the, the issue with EIAs, they provide answers that the planning system knows how to handle. But I'd argue that given what we know about cumulative effects, EIAs are actually providing the answers to the wrong question. Now, this wouldn't be so much of an issue if we had a system which was coherent and able to sort of take these um, lines of inquiry and put it into something coherent across the scales and in terms of the information collected and if it was being fed into a strategic system. Which brings me on to the last point. What sort of system do we need to assess cumulative effects? So to deal with the variables, we need consistent information about those variables or at least about the significant variables that we can manage. And that requires an assessment system that has longevity, including a funding, that includes multiple compatible data sets at appropriate scales. And we need reliable long-term data sets that can overcome the problem of shifting baselines and a strategic perspective that is independent of one activity. So regional strategic approaches are essential to determine the significance of project impacts as well as of policies and plans. As noted, there is great value in high resolution assessments too, such as those provided by EIAs, but I'd contend that EIAs should be repurposed to be cumulative effects assessments that feed into a strategic assessment process. We also need a system which is allied to adaptive management, where increasing knowledge and capacity support policymakers and delivery partners. And then finally, I just note that managing cumulative effects requires that political and ecological scales are brought into better alignment. We need cumulative effects assessments that specifically focus on delivering existing marine and coastal policy. And one of the issues is we have fragmented fragmented policy at the moment. So to conclude, cumulative effects assessment is tough. We've got complexity, we've got greater spatial scales, we've got extended timescales that all present significant challenges. But I'd argue that we've got more than enough scientific knowledge to apply sort of risk-based approaches to do better. And the final point is just that the challenge, I think, the bigger task really relates to the policy and delivery challenges that are actually illuminated by doing cumulative effects assessment. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much. Really interesting thoughts that you raised there about some of the existing assessment approaches that are being used, but also sort of how those could be considered being brought together and then some of the challenges there and it's like you've laid the gauntlet down in terms of sort of where where you think we need to go there so thank you for raising all that i think it'd be interesting now to move on to our our next speaker dr anthony knights from university of plymouth who will be following on from ed but now looking at sort of a review of the current cumulative effects assessment approaches that have been out there, seeing seeing what they've found with respect to considering the effects of man-made structures at sea. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Anthony Knights. I'm an Associate Professor of Marine Ecology at the University of Plymouth. Uh, I'm also uh, the co-PI of um, two projects funded by Insight, first of which is something called the DREAMS Project, which is related to decommissioning options of uh, offshore man-made structures. And the other one is a synthesis project which is looking to draw together uh, evidence from around the world with respect to different decommissioning options uh, and what might be some of the choices we might want to consider in light of existing international policy. So I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about that today and thinking about some of the pressures and effects that are associated with artificial structures and some of the uh, the multiple environmental targets that we have worldwide. I'd also just like to acknowledge a couple of co-authors in particular, uh, Anel Lemasson and Paul Summerfield. So Anel's a postdoc with me in Plymouth and Paul's uh, at Plymouth Marine Laboratory, as well as all of the other people that help make this work possible. So to, to start with, so what, what's the challenge? Well, we've got thousands of artificial structures in the sea, as many of you um, will know, and many of these are coming towards the end of life and requiring insights on what we actually do with them. In terms of the policy landscape currently, there's a number of different scales at which you can look at this from. Um, internationally, we have the Geneva Convention, the, uh, the United Nations Law of the Sea, as well as the uh, International Management Organization uh, guidelines, as well as regional decisions like the Oslo, uh, Oslo 
Oslo Paris Agreement Decision 98.3 from 1998, as well as other local or kind of national laws, um, which effectively mean that structures in the sea require complete removal. There are some derogations to this, and those derogations typically are related to the size of structures or the, the types of structures in terms of their construction uh, and associated hazards with um, removing them. But in general, the position is to, to, to completely remove them. Although that's uh, in the context of the wider issues around uh, decommissioning, certainly other places like the US have, have certainly pioneered rigs to reefs and, and looking to transfer um, reefs and uh, um, platforms into to reefs for um, maintenance of biodiversity. What we do know, though, and where this links to today's webinar is that actually the structures that are currently in place create a multitude of pressures and effects. And the question is, is to what extent can decommissioning options, of which I'll talk about shortly, can result in optimal environmental and societal outcomes? problem with that is that actually there isn't a huge amount of evidence actually available for decommissioning in terms of assessing what option might be best. Um, there's a lot of indirect evidence where we could look at assessing the effects of those structures indirectly, um, but there typically as a result of the age of many of these structures. The EIA process wasn't really in place at the time, which required this sort of before-after control assessment or impact assessment to really be undertaken to allow us to really pull apart what the benefits or costs of, of different decommissioning options were. So what we did within uh, the Insight program that we were funded by was to actually try and draw on some scientific consensus based on expertise and expert judgment to first of all assess what the different pressures and effects might be. So we drew together a team of 36 scientists from around the world from four different uh, continents, uh, 30 different academic and government institutions and so on and we undertook something a process called an exposure and effect assessment and the graphic here on the right hand side kind of illustrates what this process really does. It thinks about these sorts of impact we refer to as impact change where we think about a particular sector or an activity or a, or a structure in this case and how that then generates some form of pressure affecting to be a, a mechanism through which either harm or change is caused to the environment and then subsequently what that effect on that environment or ecosystem component might be. And we asked individuals to actually assess each of these different components and we looked at this in two ways. We looked at it in terms of impact, so we're looking at the severity of those effects, so how, how harmful is a particular pre uh, pressure in this case, how frequent is it and what's its scale of that effect and that can then be amalgamated into this integrated assessment of impacts. So this is building very much on a risk, a risk basis and then subsequently Subsequently, we're thinking about the, the kind of post post decommissioning options is what's the duration of some of those impacts and what are the environmental and societal costs and benefits of making a particular choice. So we asked our 36 scientists to tell us what they felt about these different range of pressures and then we converted that to a score um, to allow us to analyze these data. When we're dealing with the impact scores what we see here is that if the, big, if the score is bigger it's effectively saying that the effect is more severe, more frequent and over larger spatial scales. And really the take-home message here is that I want you to see is that you know across the range of pressures um, you have kind of generally similar impacts so often they're, they're relatively large scale, um, relatively severe um, and, and relatively frequent for many of these things but we see some differences and, and some pressures are considered less less impactful. Think, for example electromagnetic fields are considered to be less less important perhaps than, than changes in connectivity or food availability but similarly in terms of the actual costs and benefits of those pressures thinking about actually what they then lead to in terms of effects we see that things like the provision of primary productivity through food Food, changes in connectivity, for example, are, are kind of more or less desirable or certainly um, not considered undesirable, whereas kind of other things like chemical contamination, as you might expect, um, noise and so on and light uh, are considered to be um, undesirable pressures. And then if we look at the effects, um, we can look at that in the same way. Um, so we can look at, uh, for example, we're seeing kind of the effect on, on um, of these different pressures on the way in which we manage our seas um, is obviously pretty important in this case, for example, creation of de facto MPAs or other uh, effects arising from structures, um, down to um, the effects of mortality on species, for example, um, and, and considered less important. And similarly, a number of effects as a result of structures, so that these are the structures in place, are considered to be beneficial to the environment, for example, in how we might manage the system, um, changes in population dynamics, provision of habitat and biodiversity maintenance, are considered to be, to be better things as a result of these structures remaining in the sea. But the things that are considered bad, uh, you know, are, are the kind of the pollution, the disturbance, the habitat loss, um, potential for dispersal, um, assisted dispersal of non-native species, for example, are uh, some of the costs or undesirable effects associated with these structures. So effectively, the take-home message here is that there is a diversity of pressures and effects, some of which are considered to be desirable, others that are undesirable. 
So what do we keep and what do we want to lose? Well, ultimately, that then becomes a political decision um, in terms of what people might wish to consider to be the effects that we might want to keep and those that we might wish to lose. Although we did see general consensus in the opinion about the pros and cons of those different effects. Although we did see local differences in some of those effects. So, for example, um, in, in California, for example, um, the effects of, of, reef, of reef structures as a, as a decommissioning option are considered positive, whereas perhaps in the North Sea and, and, and local um, participants um, from those areas are perhaps less favorable um, of, of those structures being in the sea in those areas um, for various reasons. Um, but you can see in this case, this plot really is illustrating that actually there's a number of pressures and effects which some people might like to keep, like food availability affecting population size and stability of ecosystems, for example, and population dynamics, but things like chemical contamination people might wish to lose. So the question is, which of those do we want to keep? And again, that then becomes a manager's decision about based on that. And this, the purpose of this assessment is really to give a transparent understanding of what the press, the pros and cons of different options might be. So we then went on to then look at, well, you know, what are those pros and cons in terms of and, and how that might influence or change our perception of existing um, legislation and policy. Um, so clearly, man-made structures are both negative and positive for the environment and society with this, this diversity of desirable and undesirable effects. But what it effectively tells us is there isn't any strong support for policy change, whether that's exist to, to remove structures or whether to retain them uh, until we actually have better evidence. And what we actually found and one of the kind of key take home messages is we, we're asking whether or not actually these decisions that we might make with respect to future decommissioning might be filmed uh, might be placed on a case by case basis that might account for localized trade offs in costs and benefits at a local level. So to kind of then bring this slightly broader. So of these different decommissioning options that we have available to us, and the graphic on the right here illustrates a number of the options that are commonly used, um, we looked at these different options and linked them to existing um, kind of strategic goals under the UN, um, the future we want, the sustainable development goals, as well as um, the OSPAR regional North East, um, East Atlantic strategy. And we looked to see what effect these different decommissioning options might have on moving towards or alternatively away from those different strategic outcomes. So we looked at a number of decommissioning options. And what you can kind of take home from this is that irrespective of which decommissioning option you take, in the most part, pressures are reduced. So remove all structures and you're going to get a reduction in a lot of those pressures, whether it's chemical contamination, noise, light or so on. But Often we might see increases in other human activities, for example, it might be that the fishing access to different areas, um, which ordinarily might have been excluded as a result of those structures creating navigational hazards, um, might have excluded them. So there's changes in the way in which um, those, those uh, sectors might use those systems. So what do we conclude in terms of which of these options might be best? Well, very briefly, um, we found that, or certainly the, the, the consensus from, from the scientists was that actually of all of those different options, which are either repurpose or abandon individual structures, or alternatively to abandon multiple structures, give us the most strong contribution towards those different, those different, the 35 environmental targets that were outlined in those different um, strategy documents. But what was also clear was that some of those targets are likely not to be met. So in some cases, some of the targets will be met based on using these, uh, choosing one of these three options, but equally others may also fail. So there, there again, there'll be a political choice about actually which of those uh, options might be best. And that might be again on a local basis. And ultimately what this really does represent is a fundamental difference in approach to the current policy of complete removal. Um, and this is certainly supporting some previous calls um, to suggest that we maybe reconsider that derogation approach that we currently ap um, apply uh, under the, the OSPAR and United Nations rules, but very much on a case by case basis. So I'll leave it there. And I'd just like again to thank um, the 36 scientists who did contribute to the workshops of that um, and a number of other funding bodies. Thank you, Tony. Great talk. Really interesting stuff. Fascinating analysis as well. I know that your projects are continuing over the next next number of months, so I think we'll we'll see further additions to yeah. that. Um, we'll move on now to to our um, our final science speaker, Owen Orgorman from University of Essex, um, who's going to elaborate a little bit on some of the more specific approaches that are scientific approaches that are used can underpin uh, cumulative effects assessments. Over to you, Owen. Thanks very much, Hank, and uh, great to be here to chat to you all today. I'm more or less the spokesperson for some excellent work that's been done by one of my PhD students, Ellen Chen. Um, on man and the impact of man-made structures on benthic and vertebrate diversity, biomass and food web properties. And just to acknowledge some of his co-supervisors from CFAS and the university and also some of the 
other members of our FUCOMS team, the, the project funded through the Insight Program uh, led by Natalie Hicks. Probably don't need to convince in this particular audience why we should study the impact of man-made structures and on um, benthic communities in particular, but it is a major anthropogenic stressor that can lead to, of course, contamination and physical disturbance, but there are potentially benefits to the marine environment as well that might fall under things like artificial reefs or fish shelter and habitats. And um, one of my particular interests is in food web ecology, and it's notable that there are very few studies dedicated to food web assessment of the impact of man-made structures, and that's particularly important for benthic food webs, because benthic invertebrates living in the sediment uh, may be particularly vulnerable to the impact of man-made structures, and they also play very important roles in uh, ecosystem processes and uh, and functioning of the ecosystem associated with those regions. So when I talk about food webs, the point that you have this vertical structure as well, that biomass and diversity are not just one metric, but they're sort of spread throughout the food web. You have predators that feed on primary consumers like grazers and detritivores, which also feed on the basal resources that are um, present at the bottom of the food web. And it can be interesting to see if there are particular parts of the food web that are more affected by anthropogenic stressors than others. So for instance, maybe predators might be more susceptible because they rely on uh, resources beneath them. And if those resources disappear, well, there could be knock-on effects up the food web, if you like. And and it's interesting from that perspective to see where stressors might be uh, affecting the food web and also how the overall structure of the system is changing because there are many stabilizing features provided by that overall food web structure, such as the complexity or the connection Connectance uh, of the system. So how well is, is it connected? How much redundancy is there in the feeding pathways and energy pathways within the network? And what's the overall sort of length of food chains, which can be a really good indicator of the health or the productivity of a system. So some of the key research questions we're interested in addressing in this study were how could we use hydrocarbon data to identify the distance over which man-made structure impacts occur? How do diversity and biomass of benthic invertebrates respond to the commencement of oil production? And are there similar responses throughout the food web or particular areas or compartments that might be most affected? Uh, in terms of the data um, that Zell has been looking at, he, he managed to identify 553 sampling sites from nine man-made structures where there was data collected on species in the uh, in the environment and also environmental data like hydrocarbons heavy metal concentrations and and other environmental characteristics as well both before and after the commencement of oil began and at different distances away from the structures he's also spent some time compiling benthic invertebrate body mass data for all the species in the data set from um, from work done by co- colleagues at CFAS and also uh sourcing the the interactions of who eats who within the food web from um, literature research. So just to show you what the the concentration of total hydrocarbons might look like at different distances away from the the structure, you begin to see a clear, what we call impact zone in the first 500 meters close to a man-made structure, where after the production of oil begins, you can see a very clear increase in in background concentrations on a log 10 scale. uh, So even more dramatic than they might appear in this this figure. Um, So for our analysis, we consider all the samples collected after the production of oil within that uh, first 500 meters as the the true sort of impact for our analysis. Uh, Rather than drawing a hard line that says everything beyond that is a kind of a control, a background control, we we allow a sort of a gray area where you can see some sort of maybe oddities or deviations in terms of the the, the concentrations of oil. And um, and we we consider that to be 500 to 1500 meters away from the structure. And all the samples collected after commencement of oil, we consider that, that as a buffer zone. And then for everything else, uh, 1,500 meters away from the structure, we see indistinguishable concentrations between the before and the after. And so all the samples taken after consider as the control, but also all the samples taken before, no matter where they are in relation to the structure, are considered as sort of a temporal control to control for background noise or differences through time that might occur through more natural processes. So when we um, analyze the the, the data available to us along this idea of the impact buffer and control segments of our sort of quasi-experimental design, we can see clear increases in the concentrations of a whole suite of of, uh, different hydrocarbon compounds like normal alkanes, low molecular weight polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and high molecular weight PAHs as well, all much higher in the impact relative to both the buffer and the control. So just to explain within this figure, uh, when two letters are different from one another, that means there's a a significant difference between the, the treatments. So the impact here with the letter A is significantly higher than both the buffer 
and the control. And when a letter uh, treatments share the same letter in the case of the buffer and the control in all these panels, that means there's no significant difference between those treatments. And we also see greater concentrations of a, a suite of different heavy metals as well, such as lead, nickel, nickel copper, and cadmium in that impact zone closer to the um, man-made structures after the production of oil. But what is the impact, the ecological impact of those chemical changes? Well, we can see in terms of the, the biomass and diversity of the system that there are also responses. So the total abundance of benthic invertebrates decreases in the impact zone relative to both the buffer and the control. So we're getting fewer benthic invertebrates respective to the species. But we also see that average body mass decreases. So that's really interesting because it suggests that it's larger organisms that are particularly suffering, if you like, in the close proximity to the man-made structures as a result of this uh, chemical um, concentrations increasing. And we also see reductions in both the species richness and evenness of the benthic invertebrate communities, which are both components of alpha diversity, if you like, declining as a result of uh, these man-made structures. But let's look a little bit more about what's happening throughout the food web then. Is it just biomass and, and diversity metrics that are changing? I talked about how body size on average decreases, and it's really interesting that this follows through and that we get a, a reduction in the mean trophic level of organisms within the the food web, which means shorter food chains. And because larger organisms typically tend to be predatory higher up the food web, as we lose those larger predatory organisms, we're reducing food chain length. Um, and that's what, what um, becomes apparent in this mean trophic level declining. And to sort of support that as well, if we look at the vulnerability, the average vulnerability of a species within the food web, it's actually decreasing as well, because there are fewer predators eating other species, if you like, in, in these simpler food webs. We also see that there are fewer links within the food web. But an interesting thing is that the fewer species that remain are more connected to one another. So the, uh, the average connectance or complexity of the, the remaining species actually increases. And that suggests that it's particularly dietary specialist species that are being lost and that dietary general generalists are a little bit more robust to these kind of anthropogenic stresses. Interesting enough, a more connected food web does suggest that those hardy organisms that remain are, are probably going to be more resilient to further perturbations um, that they might encounter. So I guess to try and sum up some of those uh, results, we see clear chemical impacts within 500 meters of man-made structures. There are ecological consequences with lower uh, diversity within 500 meters and particularly larger invertebrates uh, being found to be more susceptible to these impacts. We see shorter food chains and fewer interactions within the food web, but also food webs that are more connected uh, within the 500 meters close to man-made structures after the production of oil. And I suppose just to say that this is really a first step on the FUCOMS project to understand the impacts of man-made structures. Some of our ongoing work looks at the, the response of fish communities and their diets as well to move beyond just the, the benthic in, invertebrates, those organisms living within the sediments. And we're also carrying out uh, mesocosm experiments to disentangle the relative contribution of different hydrocarbons, heavy metals, and other potential stressors. And a very important part of some of the our upcoming work is also analyzing temporal trends to try and determine the, the duration and the legacy of these impacts. And I suppose to sort of touch on that with some hot off the press results, if you like, maybe from a policy perspective, you'll say, oh, well, is it really interesting that we we realize as, as oil co production commences that, you know, you put some nasties into the environment and there are negative ecological responses. What happens after we decommission these structures. And this is some of the early results that Zellen has, has produced looking at that same experimental design, if you like, comparing impact buffer and control zones, but this time between active and decommissioned structures from that, those same data bases that we have access to. You know, early indications are that decommissioning may lead to some amelioration of effects. So we see what was a negative effect of, uh, of, of active structures on the uh, abundance of benthic invertebrates seems to disappear within decommissioned structures. And there's also reduction in the, the, the extent of uh, loss of species richness uh, close to structures after decommissioning as well. But there are a lot of questions to unpack yet, but how long after decommissioning before we see these effects occurring? Do they only uh, occur with full removal of the structure or, or maybe they're worse with full removal of the structure? And of course, a whole suite of other potentially confounding environmental factors as well that 
we need to take more uh, account of within our analyses. But keep an eye on this for more updates in the in the in the coming future. And just to say a big thank you to the the wider Fucoms team as well, from not just a, uh, in Essex but also across the other institutes involved, including VIA Denmark, SAM, St Andrews, and CFAS. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Owen. You've raised some really interesting research there and shared that you know from your research team um, acting as a great spokesman. Yes, it'd be interesting to see to see where the research goes because I understand it's still underway as well. So these are some of the early results. Okay, folks, at this point, I'm going to invite all of the other speakers back to the panel, please. Okay, our first our first question, if I can direct this to Ashlyn. So Ashlyn, Raphael and Nobili has um, has a question around the introduction of the new environmental outcomes report and that um, uh, there's a sense that it could replace the standard EIA approach. And they're wondering how that aligns perhaps with the MMO goals going forward. Thanks very much. It's a good question. And and it's an important question, given what we've been trying to say about how connected things are, how integrated they need to be and, and the system. So in terms of the MMO goals, which the MMO published last year, we're aiming for something that does integrate across the system and does move us toward taking all things into account while achieving some pretty difficult outcomes related to ecosystem function and biodiversity and people, people's well-being and their prosperity. So I think that that's a really big thing to achieve. And the way that we give out licenses and the conditions that we put on those licenses and the strategic objectives that we have around a licensing system and what that achieves is an important factor there. The two should be sitting side by side and work together. But I'm not sure that we're definitely going to be able to make that happen. We should, but because we haven't processed that yet, I don't know if we can. And then I think there's another part of this question which is about the new environmental outcomes reporting and whether that will replace the standard EIA and how that's going to, how that might or might not make a change in terms of what we're talking about here, cumulative effects. I think that there are really good aspects of environmental impact assessment and not least the fact that we've been practicing it and working with it for a very long time. Um, and at one level, it certainly works well, but there are Things related to how we contextualize what's in that EIA and how we relate it to what's going on around that particular development and how we see it at a strategic level that maybe we aren't doing as well. Also, how integrated across all the particular perspectives and values and benefit distribution that we have, how that EIA works. So I I think there's the short of all of this is I think there's a lot of work to do. Aligning up these things is an important part of that. And our system is a little bit fragmented. And I think whether we manage to achieve this alignment or not is up in the air. But I, I would like to be optimistic and hopeful about it is what I'm going to say. Thanks, Ashlyn. I, I think some of these things were touched on in Ed's talk as well, you know, about all the various different ways of assessing and, um, you know, an idea of trying to bring them all together. We'll actually move on to Ed next. Ed, you got a question from Chris Leakey and Nature Scott. Chris is saying, so if I understand you're suggesting that EIA level SEA um, could should be nested under a strategic SEA level approach. So he's talking about marine plans, nesting an EIA approach within an a more strategic SEA approach. He's asking, is it realistic in the short term? You know, is this realistic in short term or long term? Should we settle on an interim approach that's perhaps cruder and not reliant on cracking all the complexities that you touched on? Yes, it's a simple answer. However, I think the key point is that we need a coherent approach that reflects both the ecological scales and the legislated obligations that we have. And that, I argue, requires a significant change in the EIA and SEA systems. Now, the question of pragmatism is hugely relevant, but if SEA was going to step into that place, it needs teeth. And I think EIAs at the moment are, and, and this is sort of experience beyond just the UK and things, but EIAs are one of the, the critical tools which is used to make decisions about individual developments. So if there's going to be something else that sits over that, an SEA type approach, then it needs to have teeth in terms of the decision-making process. Then just lastly, I think regarding complexity, the, the part that was fascinating about kind of sitting through it and working on, on that, with that example of herring the causal loop model, was then when you then start sort of like waiting and looking at the, the level of information you need, you don't need information about everything. And you can sort of like have a slightly bespoke 
bespoke approach, but you need to have, I guess, that coherence of the underlying information. You need to have the sort of like the long-term data sets. You need to have an ability to bring what are sort of currently quite disparate data um, together to help you sort of build that picture. And that's the part where a kind of a strategic approach, which is a is a process, I think. It's not just about sort of like one-off assessments. I think there needs to be some sort of underlying process that's able to use that information that can be used by those kind of discrete assessments. But again, it's just that point that there needs to be something which is enabling that information to feed back and forth between the two. It's iterative. It's never going to get answered in one go. Change, and as, as I said, I think in the conclusion, the, the key challenge, I think, for me is that this is more of a political issue than a... Um, a sort of a scientific issue. We've actually got a follow-on question, which has actually been asked all the panellists. Um, so Ed, you've said it perhaps more of a policy political kind of thing. Dick and Howells asked all the panellists, do you think it's policy regulatory framework or on the other side, is it the supporting evidence that is the main challenge for delivering effective cumulative effects assessments? I could go around you all. Tony? Yeah, thanks for the question, Dickon. So I think to an extent, Ed's comment was a uh, about the complexity as part of the challenge. And, and one of the things, particularly with cumulative effects assessment, is is really trying to understand the, the pressure state relationships. Um, and being able to quantify those is extremely difficult because of all of these synergies, um, whether the interactions between pressures and environmental state are synergistic, um, antagonistic, or some other form, additive, multiplicative. We just, you know, it becomes so complicated. And and, and I myself have done a number of these sorts of horrendograms trying to work out what those interactions are. And, and the problem is, is you pull one lever and you're going to affect another. And often we don't know what that effect is likely to be. So trying to undertake a, a, a holistic approach to trying to come out with the best outcome is probably undoubtedly going to have a degree of trade-off associated with it. And, and ultimately, I think that then becomes um, the MMO or JNCC or whoever remit to then make a decision about what they're willing to live with, I think, in terms of what those outcomes are. And I suspect the consensus isn't always going to be, you know, one that everybody agrees with, um, but we'll have to, you know, it'll be a case of trying to move in a particular direction rather than actually trying to specify a particular outcome. And I think that's where, from a political perspective, it could become quite challenging because those ministers and, and those individuals who are then making decisions about what they want, what outcomes they wish, wish to show uh, as an outcome, um, can be somewhat opaque, I think. And that and that's part of the challenge. And you know, ultimately, the work that myself and, and, and colleagues are trying to do is trying to look at directions of, of travel rather than necessarily, say, remove this pressure and you're going to get you more fish so it's uh you know that uh, i think that's part of the challenge so i think it's it's it's, it's neither it's, it's not that the policy framework is is necessarily fully developed yet i think it, it probably needs needs tweaking and work moving towards that but also i think our approach to trying to quantify cumulative effects is also is also challenging so i think it's a little bit of both very good answer very balanced answer um I think I just effectively agree with with what Anthony was just saying there. I think it's a bit of both that you need to have that coherent policy that's sort of enabling because this is there is a lot of complexity. There's always going to be more information that's going into it, and hopefully that evidence base will be improving as time goes on. Yeah, there's probably something that you're seeing quite a lot in your job as well, Ashlyn. Yeah, one of the things that's really on my mind is that uh, it is a system, and you have to get all the parts of the system working really well, but. Um, but one of the questions for me is, is how to, is the chicken and egg, which comes first? I think that in some cases, one or the other comes first and that's okay. And we should be able to try and incorporate that into our behavior, into our structures and into our decision-making. And, and that's, I feel like, so there's, there's almost a third part of this, which, which isn't just the evidence and it isn't just the, the regulatory framework. It's about the, the, the behavior and the way that we process these kinds of complex things and I increasingly as I listen to the the work that um, that is going on in this program what I think about is that we now are talking very regularly about a number of different frameworks which try to holistically take into account many variables and different perspectives and different values and different objectives and I think that they are all trying to achieve a similar thing and that what we need to do is see that wood for the trees. Agree that we're all trying to work towards the same thing, but that that requires self-reflection and change on how we operate 
it's all trying to take into account multiple different bits. And that's that for me is what we need to fix. We need to fix our process so that we can do that really regularly. So just, just to, if I may, if I may just ask on that question, just <laughs> to ask actually a question myself. Sure. I mean, to, to, to what extent, though, should we be really trying to make some of this decision and the thinking even locally or from a UK yeah. or even England perspective that it should be apolitical? So actually, it should be far more cross cross parliamentary decision making rather than individual decisions of the government of, of the day making decisions based on a single manifesto, because ultimately these these challenges are something that face us all, both both nationally and internationally. I really agree with that, Tony, because I think also that gives it the kind of longe longevity you need when you're dealing with things exactly. like <laughs> cumulative effects on the, uh, and the significance of those on the environment. So yes, and it's kind of, it's, it's about that democratic process, which happens at all scales and all levels, and how we manage that, how we make it fair and open and transparent, which is why I think lots of people should be in on the decision-making, but also how we build together that buy-in into what we're trying to achieve. We have huge problems with, our, with biodiversity. We have huge problems with how we're trying to deal with climate change and, and not doing that, that well, how we're trying to deal with um, uh, dip, you know, e economic problems, social deprivation. There's a lot of intersection here across the things that we're trying to achieve. And actually, I believe that cumulative effects should include all of that. We should be able to take that all of that into account and be because it should be so multidisciplinary. And then we should be able to use that as a great evidence base for, for, for talking about these trade-offs that we have to make, which you mentioned. Sort of widening out the cumulative effects assessment approach to include that third element, Ashlyn, which is about people and working more collaboratively together and involving more people in the um, cumulative decision making, perhaps. Some really, really great points. And you got lots of thumbs up on that and a few comments there. People really enjoying that discussion. You mentioned, Ashlyn, um, about sort of other approaches that are being considered, including natural capital approaches. Um, I'd like to ask a question for Owen about the food web approaches that your team are investigating also lend themselves to functional ecology and understanding the functions, which can then lead on to understanding ecosystem services that are provided. And from, from the research you've got going on in your team, do you do you think that's where the where the science can go? And then you can you can be in a position to provide sort of that type of information that can feed in to wider cumulative effects assessments in future? I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, so I guess one of the, the key approaches within the FUCOMS project that I didn't get to talk about today is are some of the microbial techniques that, um, that we're putting in place. And that's trying to understand the microbial communities that are associated with different uh, components of the carbon and nitrogen cycle so that you can understand changes in genes that might be associated with um, the breakdown of ammonia or nitrates, uh, key parts of the nitrogen cycle that provide nutrients for other higher level organisms that maybe we might have more of a commercial interest in, or the carbon cycling that might lead to sequestration versus emission of carbon into the atmosphere. And, and so, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work to try and disentangle which particular contaminants or which particular physical stressors in terms of bioturbation might be altering some of these like key microbial processes that can provide important ecosystem functions or services like the, 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 the nutrient cycling and, and carbon cycling, I guess, that um, can have much bigger effects beyond the, the local environment that they're they're influencing yeah yeah great thanks owen i think we're out of questions and we're just about out of time as well so if i can thank all of our speakers today for some great uh, presentations some great conversation as well um and for tackling all of those questions really well and thank everyone for attending today thank you for your questions thank you bye-bye